morning once again. Um, Jason's going to be reading our scripture for us in just a moment. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, he's going to read from there. Uh, Thanks, Redden. Morning, church. As Redden said, this morning's Bible reading comes from Acts 4, 32 to 37. Sorry, I'm a bit taller than Redden. Let's start. Let's begin. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the Apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the Apostle's feet. This is the word of God. Will you just join me in a word of prayer before we come to that passage? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us and that you speak the words of a loving Father. We thank you that you have spoken supremely through your Son, who is your full and final word to us, and what a word of love he is. And by his love, by his Spirit, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, we are bound together. We are one in a family because of our elder brother, your Son. We pray, Father, that you would remind us of those truths now. Bind us together by your Spirit through your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Our passage is a description of life in the early church. That much is obvious. Even though it's a description of what happened back then, it still lays a very powerful claim on us sitting here this morning. As John Calvin said, we must have hearts harder than iron if we are not moved by reading this narrative, the narrative that Jason just read for us. It's a powerful picture. And if we take all the details together, it's a picture of unity. For us, it's a call to unity. If I was to try and sum it up in one sentence, sum up what this picture is saying to us, I would say, It's a call to Christian unity in soul and body. It's a call to Christian unity in soul and body. It gives us both the basis of our unity and the expression of that unity. It tells us what our unity is built upon. It tells us how we then express that unity. Now before we get to unity, it might be worth us thinking about the opposite of unity. It's worth thinking about division because then we will appreciate the unity we have all the more. One way to understand the value of rain is to experience a drought. So what divides us? Or what has the potential to divide us? We say week in and week out we are a redeemed family of servants on mission. When is that not true? What keeps us from living that out? What divides us? We have to remember that difference and division 
are not the same thing. Difference and division are not the same thing. But any difference has the potential to spill over into division because we are sinful human beings. If you are not me, then in my sin you are a threat to my interests. And I begin to notice all the ways that you are not me. I begin to notice all the potential threats to my interests. What are our differences? Bearing in mind that difference is not division, what are our differences? Well, let's start in the obvious place, race and culture. In suburban Africa, we've said this before, it's as if we're living at the confluence of two mighty rivers of culture. There's the African river, and then flowing into it, there's the Western river. They come together, they churn, they mix, they chop, they tumble, they explode in ways we can barely understand, let alone control. And sometimes that collision plays out in here, in our church family. Two mighty rivers of culture colliding all the time, often in the same individual, by the way. We see it in our differences. Differences in our ordinary, everyday attitudes and practices, those things we take for granted, those things we don't even know about ourselves. They're so automatic. Think with me just about the difference between how people who are predominantly African in culture and then those who are predominantly Western in culture do weddings or parenting. Or think with me about our differences in attitude towards time or money. Here's one that's close to home. How about our differences in how we do church music? Let's press into one of those differences together. Let's think about funerals. I think the difference, now you're going to have to forgive me for the caricatures. They're just there to illustrate the difference, the vast difference. I think the difference between a Western funeral and an African funeral is something like the difference between McDonald's and the FIFA World Cup. Now I'm going to have to explain. Going to a Western funeral is a bit like going to the drive through at McDonald's. You sit by yourself. You interact with as few people as possible. There's certain things you know you have to do. You know you have to go to the order window. And then you have to go to the payment window. And then you have to go to the collection window. You do those things. You expect to do them. But at the end of the day... Efficiency is of the essence. I need to get on with my day. That's Western funerals. African funerals are much more like the FIFA World Cup. Everybody's invited. There's a long string of preliminary events before you get to the main event. The whole thing can take a month. It can cost a fortune. So the drive-through versus the World Cup. Who's right? I'm sure you have an answer. McDonald's have the drive-through, FIFA have the World Cup. Who's right? We're not going to get into that right now. We'll come back to it. What we can say for sure is that these two experiences are vastly different. And because death is such an emotional, poignant, personal, painful experience... 
those differences can easily alienate or offend. And that's just one difference. That's just one dimension of difference. In this church, in a mixed group like this, there are a thousand ways we're different. We haven't even mentioned the generation gap, which is increasingly one of our most important differences. Think about how different it is to be a digital native compared to those of us who were still dialing the phone like this. <laughs> or class differences. In some ways, those differences are more profound than the example I just gave of race and culture, or increasingly more so. There are a thousand ways we can fall apart. There are a thousand things that can divide us. In fact, this, what we see here this morning, should not be possible, humanly speaking. And yet here we are. So what holds it together? And what is going to keep it together? The same thing that kept the early church together. We have the same basis for unity. What is that basis? Well, let's learn from them. You can see the description of their unity in verse 32. Now, the full number were of one heart and soul. Do you hear the unity language there? One heart and soul. But who was in the full number of those who were unified in heart and soul? Who were they? It's there in the text. Those who believed. Those who trusted. Trusted what? Verse 33. The resurrected Lord Jesus. This group was made up. This mixed multitude was made up of those who trusted the resurrected Lord Jesus. And they were recipients of his grace. How did they come to trust him? Verse 31, they were filled with his spirit. How did they get the spirit of Christ to fill them? How did they qualify for the filling of the spirit? What did they do to get the spirit to fill them? Nothing. That's what grace means. It was a gift from God. So what are we saying? We are saying that these people were united by an act of God. The Father sent His Son to walk on this earth in perfect obedience. He walked that walk of loving obedience all the way to the place of the skull, where He died the sinner's death. But because of His righteousness, because of His righteous love for His Father, sin and death could not hold on to Him. And so He rose in victory. And the resurrected Lord Jesus then appeared in body to His disciples for 40 days, and He taught them about the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the kingdom of God to them. And afterwards he ascended to his throne at the right hand of his father so that he could pour out his spirit on his people. All of that and nothing less is what made them into a people. That is what unified them. It takes nothing less than an act of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our unity is an act of God. And because it's an act of God, our unity is unbreakable. Now, I also live in the real world. Of course, we can deny that unity. We can fight against it. We can try to undermine it. But ultimately, 
We cannot break it. We deny it all the time through our sin. We act as if it isn't true in a whole host of ways. But do you see the madness and the tragedy of that? Madness because you are contradicting God Almighty. He has said, he has declared that we are one in Christ. You in your sins say, no, we're not. I'm not one with this one. That conversation is not going to end well for you. In that arm wrestle, there's only one winner. Sin is madness. Sin, of course, is also deeply tragic because the Lord Jesus Christ purchased this unity with his blood. When we deny our unity in the myriad of ways that we do, we trample on his sacrifice. Is there anything more tragic? Brothers and sisters, the unity we have is a wonderful, precious, heavenly reality. It is a gift from God. Let's treat it as such. How do we do that? How do we express our unity? How do we live out the heavenly reality here on earth? How do we express what is true in eternity in the here and now? If we're saying that God has given us the gift of unity, well, how, how do we use that gift properly? What's the proper way to use it? How do we express our unity? The, the early church did it in at least three ways. There, from our text, verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. The early church expressed its unity in truth, in love, and in submission. Those three ways. At least those three ways. Truth, love, and submission. We start with truth and love. Or, word and deed, mission and care, witness and service. In the Christian life, these two things always hold together. The moment we separate them, we get ourselves into whole worlds of trouble. The moment we separate them, we are no longer expressing our unity. Truth without love is hollow. As Paul said, if I have all understanding and all knowledge, in other words, if I have all truth, but have no love, I am nothing. Truth without love amounts to nothing. If you hold to the truth, but you don't live it out in love for God and love for others, well, you haven't really understood the truth. And so you end up with neither truth nor love. Paul is right when he says, I'm nothing. Or it can be worse. You can know the truth, you can confess the truth, but willingly choose not to love. It's called hypocrisy. It's the gap between our lip and our lives. Hypocrisy is that divided person. You cannot have a unified community made up of divided individuals. 
That's truth without love. But the same applies to love without truth. Love without truth is no longer love. At least not as the Lord defines love. How can you claim to love someone and still withhold Jesus from them? You can share everything you have with them, but if you don't share Jesus and they end up in hell, what have you actually done for them? Again, it can be worse. Without the truth of Jesus Christ, your service will end up being self-centered. Either it's going to be centered on him or it's going to be centered on you. You will find your identity in service instead of in Christ. Self-centered service sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's a real danger when you lose sight of the truth himself. The one who said, I am the truth. Again, as Paul said, you can give everything you own to the poor and you can still do it without a hint of love. Because, how is that possible? Well, because you're doing it out of self-interest. Either it's some form of self-justification or you're doing it out of pride or you're doing it out of a whole host of other possible motives. But it's not love. It's not love. If that's the case, Then you can give away everything you own to the poor, but in God's eyes you gain nothing. Love without truth is also hypocrisy, and once again, divided individuals lead to a divided church. We are called to be a people of truth and love, word and deed, mission and care, witness and service. Not either or, both and, always, living in truth and love, truth and love, is how we express and experience the richness of our unity, our God-given unity. So what does truth look like? Truth is trusting and proclaiming the ascended Lord Jesus Christ every chance we get. Lives are changed when the word is spoken in the power of the Spirit. That's the philosophy of ministry in this church. It always has been. More importantly, that's the witness of Acts. Spirit and word go together. Just think with me about Pentecost. If you remember what you've read about Pentecost... What happens on Pentecost? The Spirit is poured out on the church. The Spirit is visualized as what? The invisible Spirit is visualized as what in that event? Do you remember? As tongue, tongues of fire, and as wind or breath. Do you see that those are speaking images? What constitutes speech? Tongues and breath. They are speaking images. They are pictures of God's word. And immediately what happens? What happens when the spirit is poured out? The disciples begin to speak. And what do they speak? What do they declare? They declare the mighty acts of God. When those who are looking around and are confused and are asking, what does this mean? Are these men drunk? Peter stands up and what does he do? He once again speaks. What does he speak about? 
What does he preach? He preaches Christ and him crucified. Spirit and word always go together. That's how it was when the church was born. That's how it is today. With the spirit moving amongst us and working amongst us by God's grace, we will speak the word of Christ, the ascended Christ, to one another every chance we get. And of course, I'm not just talking about this pulpit. I hope that much is obvious. I mean, any chance you get, any chance you get, you will share the ascended Lord Jesus Christ with each other, with your brothers and sisters inside the church family, and with those outside. That's not just what the church does. That's who the church is. Proclaiming the gospel and trusting it for ourselves is a fundamental expression of what binds us together, of our unity. We speak the truth. We speak the truth in love. That's the second expression of our unity, love. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. How's that for a Sunday morning challenge? That's radical, isn't it? That's not giving out of income. That's liquidating your assets. That's not income sheet giving. That's balance sheet giving. It's radical. We've said in a previous sermon on Acts last year, let's note that this is neither capitalism nor communism. This approach to property is in a category all of its own. This approach to property is not about the glory of the individual, capitalism, or the glory of the collective, communism. This is about the glory of God. This is radical generosity motivated by the infinite generosity of God. Christ's very practical love for us. He didn't say, go, go, my brother, be warm and well fed, I'll pray for you. His very practical love for us. He gave his life. It, gets, it doesn't get more practical than that. His very practical love for us spills over into our very practical love for each other. In this passage, we're called to give our property. He did it voluntarily. We are called to do it voluntarily. More than that, to do it cheerfully. Because it's an outworking of God's infinite generosity to us. Now, how does this work out in our church family, in the life of our church family, day to day? Well, there are as many opportunities as there are needs. To get to know the needs, you need to know the people. If you want to get to know some of the people, start by joining a life group. I think this is the third sermon this morning you are hearing on life groups, but it's an important theme. We keep beating this drum because it's right at the heart of what it means to express our unity. Can I say that the exquisite vision of unity that we read in Acts chapter 4 
of a family built on truth and love is never going to be ours if we only ever turn up here on a Sunday. Now, I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but my job is to speak the truth in love. The place we try to live this out is in our life groups. That's why we keep going on about them. If you are not in a life group, please can I appeal to you once more, join a life group. Help us together to answer the call to real unity, to lived unity. And if you are already in a life group and it's not quite as loving as you would hope for, will be the difference. Make the difference in that group. How do you promote love in that group? Simply by taking an interest, a personal interest in the other people there. Get to know someone. Ask them about their life. Ask them about their extended family. I can promise you it is not going to take long before a need that you can possibly meet will surface. It's not going to take long. All of us sitting here are needy people in one way or another. Talk to someone, you're going to bump into that need. It's inevitable. You must join a life group. You can also join our pastoral care team. These are the people led by Rafa, by Martha. These are the people who show up at the side of the hospital bed or at the side of the grave. They're the ones sitting in the living room that is wet with tears. These are the people who show up in a crisis armed with nothing but truth and love. Join them. What a wonderful way to express our unity. Join them. You can chat to Rafa after the service. God has made us into one people. Jesus unites us. We express that unity by sharing him with each other and by treating each other's needs as if they were our own needs. There's one more way we express our unity, submission to authority. Did you notice where the people laid the proceeds of the assets that they sold? Did you notice that? At the feet of the apostles. They were united in their common submission to apostolic authority. Now let me state the obvious. Although in our wider church context this may not seem so obvious, the apostles are no longer with us. It's been 21 centuries. So who do we submit to? Where do we lay down our crowns? At the feet of the apostolic witness. We don't have the apostles. We do have their witness to the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. That's what your Bible is. God's word is our authority. It is the authority that establishes and rules over every other authority in this church. From the wardens to the church council to the heads of our various ministries, both full-time and lay heads of our various ministries, none of us has our own authority. None of us is acting on our own authority. If we are, we need to be governed again and rule again by the one authority that actually exists. Any authority that anybody exercises in this church is established by God's word. Our king has spoken. We do well to listen to him. And if we do, it will keep us in unity. It will keep us together. Let's review. The basis of our unity is the grace of our God and Father 
in sending us his, our Lord Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and in pouring out his spirit, the basis of our unity is an act of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We express that unity in truth, in love, and in submission to authority. Really important at this point to just impress upon you one very important thing. One thing we do not want to confuse. We do not want to confuse the basis of our unity with the expression of that unity. It is not our love for other people that unites us. It's God's love for us that unites us. We simply witness to his love in word and deed by loving one another. And if you stop to think about it, thanks be to God that it's that way and not the other way. Can you imagine if our unity depended on our love for each other? Brothers and sisters, we would fall apart before the end of this sermon because I can guarantee that I have said something that is not completely loving or or I've omitted to say something that would be loving. If our unity depends on our knowledge of the truth or our love for each other, we've broken apart already. We've lost the battle already, but it doesn't. Praise be to God, it does not. Jesus has made us one. That's why we keep going back to him. We keep resting in him. We keep praying to him. We keep depending on him to remind us of the unity that we only ever ultimately have in him. And then also to heal us when in our sin we break apart. Our unity is about Jesus from start to finish. The moment it isn't about Jesus, we disintegrate. So we have to get this order right. We don't witness and serve to achieve unity. We have unity in Christ, and so we witness and serve. Are you with me? Practically, What does that mean for our divisions? Well, let's go back to where we started with the example I gave of race and culture. If you think about it, a lot of the difference between African and Western cultural expression comes down to an emphasis on community over against an emphasis on the individual. So who's right? I'm sure you have an answer. What's so interesting is that in our passage we find both. Verse 34 says of the community, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought, them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then verse 36 says of the individual, thus Joseph, almost an exact mirror of what has just been said of the community, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The community is not just a faceless mass where individuals don't matter. Nor is Joseph just an island unto himself, living out his private faith in private piety. God has a model that is better than African communalism or Western individualism. And it's not some mix of the two. He works through the community in the lives of individuals. 
and he works through individuals in the community. God transforms community by transforming individuals from the inside out. That's how he builds his great society, his great kingdom. One sinner at a time, transformed from the inside out. And then, God transforms individuals by placing them in the community. Have you discovered that? I hope so. You can't stay very long in your own selfish bubble if you're in the family. The individual and the community are both an act of God. We are not saved by community. And we are not saved for individualism. As individuals, we are saved by God for community. For communion with God and for communion with one another. Do you see the difference? And so it's not motoke motokabato. It's motoke motokamodimo. And it's batoke batokamodimo. The gospel... I just got David's endorsement, so I'm, that's what I was aiming for. The gospel even changes our proverbs. It changes our common sense conventional wisdom. A person is a person because of God. A community is a community because of God. God brings us together and helps us to see this truth in action. Now, of course, there are elements of truth in Western culture. And there are elements of truth in African culture. But there are also clear excesses and deep deficiencies in African communal living and in Western individual living. And we are, broadly speaking, all members of one or the other. The key to unity is not to retreat into our camps. That's called apartheid. Need I say more? It also doesn't help to swap camps, to try and swap camps, for African people to try and become more Western. It's absurd. Or for Westerners to try and become more African. Equally absurd. You've seen how we dance. It's hopeless. (laughs) It's not going to work. Because in the end, you can only be who God has made you to be. We have to be who God has made us to be. With all of our differences. So we're thrown back on our original question. How is that going to work? How are we going to stay together? What is the basis for our unity? That's the question. We're thrown back there. We are all filled with one spirit. We share one faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to one Father. God, Father, Son, and Spirit is our unity. He's the one who keeps our differences from becoming divisions. Because we are bound by the blood of Christ, in the end, nothing can pull us apart. Nothing. Nothing is strong enough. What is stronger than the blood of Christ? Nothing. We can try, of course, and we may even succeed for this life. But in eternity, we are one. You better get used to loving these people because you are with them forever.
whether you like it or not. In fact, and this is the this is the mind-blowing power of the gospel. Because of Jesus, we are no longer just different from each other. Because of Jesus, we are different for each other. Because of Jesus, our differences don't have to divide us. They can actually unite us. They can actually deepen and enrich our experience of the unity that God has given us. Our differences, our differences begin to enrich our unity. In each other, we begin to see our blind spots and our excesses. In each other, we find a rich variety of new ways to worship the one God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We close with this. Brothers and sisters, in this church, God has done something extraordinary. Look at what God has done. It's not rhetorical. Actually, look. Look at what God has done. This kind of mixed multitude is a very rare and precious thing, even in our wider society. You can go to other churches. You might find pockets of it, but it's a rare and precious thing. And so we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. We can either give in to our sin and do our best to break that which ultimately cannot be broken. It's the definition of insanity. Sin is mad. Or we can get busy celebrating it, prizing it, affirming it, growing it, deepening it, prizing it, treasuring it, all by expressing it in truth in love and in submission. And we remember that that will never happen without God's empowering grace. Without God deepening our roots into the basis of our unity, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we need to pray. I'm going to do that now. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Lord God, thank you that by making each one of us new, you have given us the gift of each other. Father, by the Spirit of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, help us to treasure this precious gift. Protect us from the evil one who constantly seeks to divide us. And help us to grow, build, and sacrifice for the sake of our unity in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.